Good morning. Even though the sun is shining, it still kind of feels a little bit like a, like one of those days, you know, um, where you need a second cup of coffee. My name's Jesse. I'm a pastor here at Indelible Grace. If you're new here, like Wade said, I'd love to meet you. And we're currently in the midst of a sermon series on Proverbs, on wisdom. We're looking at what it means to live wisely in this world, to walk and talk the way of wisdom, which is to say the way of life. This, we believe that wisdom is the way of life. And today we're looking at wisdom in conflict. So let's look at our scriptures. You can turn your bulletin over. Uh, I've got a host of scriptures here from Proverbs. As Before we do this, I'm going to invite you to pray and ask the Spirit, which of these verses you need right now. Just pray that the Spirit would tap you on one of these words or phrases we read through this. All right, excerpts from Proverbs. Proverbs 10, 18, and 19. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Good sense, is Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I'll pay back the man for what he has done. And what your eyes have seen, do not hastily bring into court. For what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Argue your case with your neighbor himself, and do not reveal another's secret. Lest he who hears you bring shame upon you, and your ill repute have no end. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisper, a quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for his kindling strife. Better is open rebuke than hidden love, and faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word given to us in wisdom, given to us for wisdom. And Father, I pray that your word would stand out. Your word would remain. Lord, would you bring healing where there is hurt, Father. We pray that we would learn better how to be wise in conflict. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I've got four Ps for you. We're going to look at the place of conflict, the place of conflict, the pitfall of conflict, uh, the postures for conflict, 
and then the promise of conflict. So let's look at the place of conflict. As soon as I say conflict, some of you guys are like, ah, no thank you. I really don't even like the sound of that word. You would not dream of being that direct, clearly laying out to someone how they've hurt you. To engage in conflict is to be vulnerable. It's to open yourself up to vulnerability, especially if you've been hurt by this person before. Conflict is a loss of control. What might happen if we go there? Conflict is also dangerous. Like, what if they get angry? What if I get angry? What if you say something you, you cannot come back from? Irrevocable damage. Family, culture, and ethnicity also factor in, even region, and how we deal with conflict, how we think about it. My family, the Robinson family culture, was a let's yell this out until we're crying and we're hugging. And that's what we did. Other families are different, right? Different cultures, Chinese, Korean, Italian, Mexican, African American, they all frame the rules of conflict. They have different modes and strategies and expectations about what is conflict? Some is extremely direct, extremely expressive, and others is absolutely not. Mental health professionals have, have a label, conflict avoidant, to describe the tendency to try to avoid conflict. Now, if that's you, be encouraged. Proverbs actually agrees. Proverbs is very conflict avoidant. Look at Proverbs seventeen, fourteen. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Starting into conflict is, is like opening a crack in a dam. That's the image here. It's not like a leaky faucet where you can easily control it and turn it off and on. It says, no, conflict is like a dam where all this pressure is, is building up behind it. And so one little crack could absolutely deluge you, flood you. Conflict is dangerous, so quit before it happens. This is especially true when there's more than two people in a conflict. It can feel like a flood, like you're drowning. Uh, th- there was a movie uh, about ten years ago called Carnage, and it's an excellent lesson on the flat on the flash flooding inherent in conflict. The premise of this movie is that there uh, one eleven-year-old boy has knocked the teeth out of another 11-year-old boy. And the whole movie is about their parents talking about it. You never really see the boys. It's just one continuous conversation of the two parents. Now, the parents of the victim have invited the parents of the other to their apartment to reconcile. And the whole movie is this conversation. At first, the tone is self-consciously moral, even self-righteous. We're going to do this right. Quote, there's nothing to be gained from getting stuck down some emotional cul-de-sac, the victim's mother begins. There is still such a thing as the art of coexistence, isn't there? She's trying to do the right thing, trying to invite this couple. Let's talk about this. We're not going to make cold grudges. But the facade of civil conversation soon breaks down. As they keep talking, the less apologetic they become. And the perpetrator's parents actually begin to defend their son's actions. And they attack the victim. And at one point, what, one husband yells, I'm up to here with these idiotic discussions. We tried to be nice. We bought tulips. And my wife passed me off as a liberal. 
but I'm not a member of polite society. The conversation further deteriorates. Spouses turn on each other, screaming and drinking into oblivion. It's a train wreck. There's a reason the movie's called Carnage. You see the carnage of human conflict. Even with the best intentions and the most liberal of sensibilities, conflicts can so easily flip into carnage. There are these points when the, when the conflict could have receded, but it was goaded on. Proverbs has these caricatures. It talks about the wise, the fool. And one of them is the quarrelsome man. It's a caricature. Look at Proverbs 26, 21. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. Conflict is a fire. And the quarrelsome man is a pyro. He loves throwing kindling on the fire, enlarging it. The New Testament actually picks up on this and warns against elevating quarrelsome men into leadership. Paul says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind. Putting a quarrelsome man in leadership in the church is like electing an arson as, as a park ranger. Right? You just wouldn't do that. That's not a good situation. So, so conflict is a, is a flood. It's also a fire. Right? Hot in the head. That's, that's, that's actually a literal. Your body temperature goes up in conflict. Your heart rate goes up. We've all been burned by conflict. Isn't it safer just to like not start the fire? Now Proverbs agrees that conflict is dangerous and should generally be avoided. However, it also maintains a place for constructive conflict, or what I like to call wise conflict. There is a place for wise conflict. Look at Proverbs 10, 18. It says, The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. Hatred. That seems intense, right? You might say, I don't hate anyone. Maybe the Dallas Cowboys, but I don't hate anyone. Look at how the proverb, though, is structured. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. Lying lips. Our hatred comes out in lies, meaning that there's some sort of deception that, 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 that we're a party to. Sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking we're not angry, we're not, we don't hate this person. And so it's not only deceiving, lying about to others, it's also lying to ourselves. God is so structured, human psychology, that hatred cannot become out of our hearts. Jesus tells us this in Matthew 12:34. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It comes out on our lips, the proverb says, in the form of slander. Now, in English, slander is usually a false statement about someone. But biblically, slander is just a bad report. You're talking bad about someone else. It can be true. And so what, what the Bible is saying is, there are times when you catch yourself speaking about someone poorly. And that actually reveals a hatred, this, this deep thing that's seated in your heart. And hatred, biblically, is not just this full-on despising of someone. The biblical term also has connotations of rejection, 
avoidance. You want to reject this person. You want to avoid them. And those can so easily grow into hatred. That's the, the sapling of hatred. So what the Proverbs is saying is, if you find yourself speaking or avoiding someone, speaking ill of someone to someone else, it means something is off in your heart. You're probably angry about them, and there might be some opportunity for engagement of conflict. You need to go talk to that person. Here's a wise rule. If you find yourself feeling or acting differently around some person who said something or hurt you, after a couple of days, like there's been some days and you're still kind of rehearsing it, there's something there. Start asking God if it would be wise for you to engage in some wise conflict. Enter into discernment of why, why does that hurt? Why can't I let this go? That's important. What is, what, what wise engagement of conflict does when you actually bring an issue to someone, it actually has the potential to defuse that, to get rid of that hatred, to heal your heart. Now, you could say, well, I'll just deal with it myself, right? It's just my issue. But that's also self-deception, because hatred comes out in your speech. And it's a cancer to a community, to a church. If there's a beef between two people, you feel it. Spiritually, it matters. The devil actually calls that a foothold. A foothold. So let me give you two places for wise conflict. Conflict is to be avoided, but there are two places for it. First, you've been hurt. And you feel that hurt coming out in your speech and morphing into avoidance or hatred. And Jesus himself reiterates that that's a moment for wise engagement in conflict. Matthew 18, 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So you've been hurt, or vice versa. Someone has been hurt by you. It's a humbling thought, right? The dislike or avoidance that you feel towards someone else, someone else probably feels that towards you. Right? You've probably been um, a perpetrator. And Jesus actually puts the, the premium of urgency on that person. If you know you've hurt someone, Matthew 5.23, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. He says it's so important that even if you're like worshiping in the temple, you need to go and reconcile with that person. So those are the two places, two places for wise conflict. If you've been hurt or you've hurt someone, that's the place. Let's look at the pitfall, a pitfall in wise conflict. Let's look at Proverbs. We'll use Proverbs 24 here. Proverbs 24, 28. Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I'll pay back the man for what he has done. It's actually warning against deception here. Because in a, in a conflict, there is a temptation to exaggerate your complaint and your feeling. When, when you're hurt, there's a tremendous temptation to skew the truth. Your heart gets set to payback mode rather than truth mode. You want to make yourself look as good as possible and the other, your disputant, look as worse as possible. That's instinctual. It's human nature. That's, that's why the words, the words, you never or you always are not helpful, right? That's not really the truth. 
No one never does anything. Same with always. And that's, the Bible calls that false witness, bearing false witness, which is the ninth commandment of the Ten Commandments, one of the most underrated. Exodus 20.16 says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, it's framed in legal language, but it's not just meant for court cases. According to Jesus, the spirit of the law is more important than the letter. And so this, this here is saying, in all your things, you need to speak the truth. Be very careful to speak the truth. Now, in our, uh, in our reformed tradition, we, we, we're a confessional church, and we, we look at the Westminster Larger Catechism, which actually unpacks each of the Ten Commandments. Listen to how it unpacks this command to, to not bear false witness. It says, this commandment requires, quote, speaking the truth and nothing but the truth from our hearts, sincerely, freely, clearly, and without equivocation. That's intense. It says do that in all circumstances. That is the requirement of this command. It also says we must refrain from, quote, lying, slandering, backbiting, belittling, gossiping, ridiculing, reviling, and expressing any kind of judgmental opinion that is rash, harsh, or prejudiced. You guys feeling, feeling the heat a little bit? Let's keep going. It gets better. It says, we should not gratuitously reveal the problems and failings of others. Like, we shouldn't be eager to say, ha-ha, you really are messed up. I knew it. No, instead, instead, what, what, what not bearing false witness is, is actually having a care for the reputation of your brother or sister. You don't want to shame them. Also, bearing false witness means that we don't spread false rumors. And we also refuse, we also don't refuse to listen to a just defense. Like we want to hear people's defense for their actions. We're not suspicious. We don't exaggerate the significance of trivial faults. You should go and look at this. Westminster Larger Catechism on, on, on bearing false witness. It's intense. Uh, you, you realize that there are so many opportunities that, you, that, that, that we actually lie or we deceive, or we make someone sound worse than they really are. Gossip. Gossip, it says, that's speaking about other people. Look at verse, um, look at, uh, verse 9 of, uh, Proverbs 25. Proverbs 25, 9. It says, argue your case with your neighbor himself and do not reveal another's secret. There's a danger that when we begin to speak about other people, Bearing false witness is actually saying things that you shouldn't say about other people. Like, that's not your story. In church, in church business, we talk about people all the time. And we have to be very careful not to bear false witness. Is that our story to tell? Gossip is absolutely a place where we can fail to speak the truth. So the spirit of the ninth commandment is to vigilantly guard first the truth and then secondarily reputation. When we enter into conflict, we have to be very careful to speak only what is true and verifiable. Now, if there is this passion for truth, that also means that when we're in conflict, we need to be direct. We need to be direct. I know it's really hard for some of our personality types. Like, sometimes we're very indirect. 
I'm very passive-aggressive. But, but, but clarity is a value. It's a spiritual value to be direct. Where did this hurt me? You have to be precise. Um, one of, a couple of years ago, uh, I had two sisters. One of them was in my church, and the other was uh, was in another church. And they were having a conflict. And it was on politics. One had voted for one one presidential candidate, the other another. And they were so angry at each other. Like, they just could not figure out how dare... They couldn't conceive how the other could have voted for the other pres, president, candidate. And so I entered into this, this like mediation process. And one of the really interesting things that happened was as, as we looked at the, the Ninth Commandment, they realized that so much of their conflict was speaking things that weren't true about the other person. Well, she, she does this because of this. That's bearing false witness. Or you're assuming things about her. I mean, you haven't actually asked her or listened well. And this, this, the ninth commandment actually became an opportunity. It healed them as they began to realize that they needed to engage each other at a different level, to not speak for the other, but to listen better to what their, each was saying. So that's the pitfall. The pitfall is speaking uh, false witness. Let's look at our third point. What are the postures of wise conflict? So you're in conflict, you're in wise conflict. How do you engage? Well, Proverbs names several heart postures for conflict. I want to give you four, though. Four. The first one is a ruled heart. A ruled heart. We see this in um, Proverbs 16.32, which is not in your uh, bulletin, but listen to this. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. We said earlier that conflict is a loss of control, and that's true to a degree, but you can retain control of yourself in conflict. Right? Self-control is wisdom. It says he who rules his spirit is better than a conqueror. If you can rule yourself, and that makes sense in conflict. Like, no one wants to do conflict with a hothead or a hysteric. You want someone whose heart and emotions and words are ruled by themselves and also God. Christians have an incredible gift in God's word. We share a standard in conflict, which is to, me, to say we're ruled by the Lord. So are you ruled? Are you ruled in conflict? There's a, there's a posture there of submission. Secondly, second posture is restrained, a restrained heart. It's restrained in judgment and in anger. Again, Proverbs 25, 7 through 10. What your eyes have seen, do not hastily bring into court. He's saying there, there needs to be some sort of restraint, patience. Wisdom is slow and careful to discern whether conflict is needed. It restrains feelings of injury and injustice. And this restraint extends to judgment. Wisdom doesn't judge, jump to judgment. Like, maybe I misunderstood what this person was doing. And so there's a restraint. And don't, don't judge. Let's listen. Let's listen. Restraint is especially seen in words. Look at Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. <laughs> Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Some personalities... Enter into conflict. Some, some personalities are like verbally constipated. Like it takes them a long 
trying to get anything out, right? Some personalities, like they enter into conflict and there's just a flood of words and feelings. Conflict is not the time for catharsis. Like verbal processing and conflict is playing with a hand grenade. Okay? Verbal, like uh, one biblical commentator says, the prudent do not multiply their words in order to bring transgression to an end. Rather, they show restraint. In conflict, words matter more, not less. And so you have to restrain your words. This is not the time for you to, to, to go off on how you feel. Instead, the, the measure is, is this true? If I say this, is this true? And would it be helpful? Proverbs 12, 18 says... There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Did you hear that restraint? Restraint. A third posture, receptive. A receptive heart. A receptive heart is open to the other. It listens. Proverbs 12:15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. In other words, are you receptive that maybe you don't see things rightly? Or are you receptive to another point of view? Do you have a listening posture? Are you able to hear the other side? A receptive heart doesn't just stop at listening. It seeks to feel it. It seeks empathy. Oh, that makes sense why you would say that. Or I understand why you would feel or think that. Empathy and conflict, when it's genuine has an incredible power to diffuse anger and bitterness. Don't you want that? Receptive. There's that popular prayer attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He says, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. And then it goes, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand. A receptive heart seeks not so much to be understood, but to understand the other person. How can I understand you? And a receptive posture is opposed to a competitive spirit. Some of us just want to win. That's not the way to do conflict. The wise person values values receiving more than winning. And people will feel that. People will feel if you're really receptive or not. Which leads us to our final posture, a repentant heart. Are you receptive enough to hear hard words about your own failings? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus condemns judging your brother or sister. He says, why do you see that speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus pretty much says that you're not going to see clearly until you see yourself clearly. So are you ready to repent of the ways that you contributed to the conflict? Maybe it was your quickness to judgment. This is why it's so important to think and pray and journal beforehand. Use your journaling and your prayer as catharsis. That way you can have clarity as you enter in to this. And that way you can already have a notion of where did I, where did I sin? Where did I contribute to this? Here's, here's a good rule. Um, you can almost always repent of pride. You can almost always repent of pride. Especially in conflict. Conflict just, 
Pride feeds conflict. Now, these are postures of the heart. These are not step-by-step guides, but they're actually more important to conflict because they will guide your speech. Remember, whatever is in your heart comes out of your mouth. You will, you will, and the only way you can get your heart in these postures is through prayer and surrendering your anger and hurt to the Lord. And, and, and Proverbs 16 actually beautifully illustrates what you're going for. Look at Proverbs 16, 21. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. What if your conflict actually nourished someone? What if they, what if it was actually sweet? The way that you entered in. There was such humility, such, such calm, such poise. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, let's look at the, the final thing, the, the, the final point, the promise of wise conflict. What's the, what's the promise of conflict? Like, why do we do this to begin with? Why risk the fire of conflict? It's probably, probably obvious, but conflict actually holds the potential for a fuller, truer peace. It might feel like conflict is the opposite of peace. Like, why would you disturb it? But I think there's actually two kinds of peace. The first is a peace defined by the absence of conflict. Think of a still pond, right? It looks really nice. The water's at ease. It's a comfortable image. But the closer you look at that water, the more muck you'll find. You don't want to drink that water. Okay? It's disease. There's all sorts of... It's stagnant. It's stink. Then there's the peace that actually comes through wise conflict. The peace earned by wise conflict. And that's more like a river. It's like a river. There, Yeah, there's going to be rocks that are rubbing against. There's friction. And yet there's a beauty and a purity to it. There's emotion. It's moving towards something. And that's the peace that's earned by wise conflict. And it's a better peace to be had on this other side of conflict. And that's true in organizations or systems, churches, marriages, families, friends. Like, I, I bet you that the people that are your closest friends are those who you dare to fight with. Those who've had real substantial conflict and worked your way through it. A total lack of conflict means that there's nothing worth fighting about or for. Which scripture unequivocally rejects. There are some things worth fighting for and fighting with. Sometimes, though, we have to be honest. That even when we engage in that conflict, there's not a peace on the other side. There's just more hurt. And that's why peace is not the promise of conflict. It's not the immediate promise of conflict. Sometimes you cannot get peace. The promise of conflict, I think, is actually a sharpening. Look at our last proverb, Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. I don't want you to hear this as some sort of like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, uh, or like some Nietzschean, you know, way that conflict is good for conflict's sake. No, what Scripture is saying is that God uses conflict with each other to sharpen us. The theological word here is sanctified, to make us holier, to make us better. 
more beautiful, more humble. A knife, a knife that is never sharpened, becomes very dull very quickly. Just come to my kitchen and, and see. Um, and, and there are some people that they're, they're dull because no one has ever actually sharpened them. That's, that's why there are some sparks are good and necessary. If no one ever confronts you or fights you, you will become very dull. You'll be quite confident in your own superior wisdom and intelligence. And it's a cycle. People will get your vibe and will continue to avoid conflict with you. But that's the opposite of what the promise of conflict is that it, you will be sharp. You will be interesting. You will be humble and thoughtful. And this sharpening is actually an act of love. Look at Proverbs 27, 5 through 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Sometimes confidence is necessary to save us. We need saving. Think about all the intervention stories, right? You have an addict who's destroying their life. And the loved ones are all scared. They don't, they don't want to lose the relationship. And yet what that person needs most is for someone to intervene. Someone to dare enough to have conflict, to love. And that's where love is at the heart of conflict. If no one ever confronts you, it's because no one ever loves you that much to confront you. Confrontation is, is the highest form of love. So even if conflict doesn't resolve in peace, you can still be sharpened by it. In fact, unresolved conflict is the most sharpening. Nothing else reveals how much you need salvation. In, in, in the movie Carnage, um, it's, it's going, it, it's at this peak. They're, they're fighting, they're bickering. And at one point, the, one of the husbands says, you see, Veronica, I believe in the God of Carnage. I believe in the God of carnage. He has ruled since the dawn of time. Which is interesting. It it says that there's something about God, something about our impression of who God is, that impacts our vision of conflict. Do, Do you... Who is the God that you see? Do you believe that when you're in conflict, that there will be... It will just be this morass of violence and yelling... Or do you see that maybe God is not a God of carnage, actually a God of peace? Here's the true sharpening of wise conflict. When you enter into wise conflict, you are becoming like Jesus. Here's the gospel. The God was not conflict avoidant with you. The scriptures paint humanity as in rebellion against God. We reject God. We even hate him. Hostile in mind, Colossians 1 says. Flagrantly doing things that violate and provoke him. But God did not let his heart become hateful. Rather, he entered into conflict with us. And his posture was so receptive to us that the very God of the universe took on flesh. He felt what we feel. He sympathized with us. And still we sentenced him to torture and death. And yet even then, how restrained he was. And he opened not his mouth, Isaiah 53 says of Jesus. But when he did speak, it was words of mercy and forgiveness. 
Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He prayed forgiveness for those who had hurt him most. And in dying, that after dying, he reconciled us to himself. And his resurrection is the ground of our peace. Not only our peace with God, but also with each other. Ephesians 2.14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. So in a sense, when we enter into conflict, into wise conflict, in faith, in faith, we're actually proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are worth enough for me to confront you, for me to disagree with you. God loved you so much that he entered into conflict for you. And he calls us to do the same for others, to love people enough to enter into conflict with them. And that peace, that peace that counts most is a peace that we pursue out of love. Out of love. Look at Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. You see, it is God's glory that he has overlooked our offense. And he has done it because of Jesus Christ. It is his glory And that actually helps us. Jesus is the ground of our peace because when we look at him, we have sinned against him in such a profound way that nothing that anyone could ever do to us could could hold a candle. He actually gives us the freedom, the freedom to forgive, to overlook. And friends, when you do that in conflict, you are becoming glorious and beautiful. That is the promise of wise conflict, that you are being sharpened and sanctified and beautified. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you did not abandon us in conflict, but you pursued us. You loved us enough to come for us. And so we pray that you would give us wisdom, O Lord. We pray that you would give us a pursuit of you in conflict, that we would love enough to speak the truth. Make us people that engages in wise conflict, O Lord. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.